0: the meat of the podcast like, have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Oh yeah. Like a yeah yeah this is going to be disaster. yeah yeah yo, yo, this shit feels like i won't ever make it more off this
1: From St. Petersburg in Brooklyn. This is She's in Russia. I'm Lily. And I am Semit. Semith.
0: Semith.
1: My name's Samiti. Alright. Lily. What?
0: we got a, an, a special guest today who is it
1: yeah we have a very special guest his name is mark bullen our first brit and, <laughs> first of all that's racist secondly <laughs> no, it's not i don't know that he's british <laughs> bless the queen yeah we have uh, a special guest mark bullen who what should i say about him
0: He's a former cop. He's written a book called Thief in Law, which is a guide to Russian prison tattoos and Russian-speaking organized crime. And he's going to talk to us about You're
1: reading reading the book. the book title. I sure am. He's he's a former police officer in the UK. Yes. Pink. Pink. Yeah. Yep. Marky.
2: My name is Mark Bullen. I'm the author of Thief in Law, a guide to Russian prison tattoos and Russian-speaking organized crime gangs. Uh, I was a police officer in the UK for 11 years and I dealt with all different types of Russian criminals and I specialised in gathering information about their tattoos. Uh, I left the police a few years ago and have uh, put together all my work into a book featuring all their different tattoos, what they mean and what the Russian mafia get up to.
0: Why were you particularly interested in tattoos? Was it just something you came across arbitrarily?
2: So uh, I was a student in Russia uh, when I was a youngster in the 90s, so I learnt Russian uh, that way. I uh, went back to the UK and joined the police in 2003. Uh, and then just, you know, was a general copper on the streets, uniform uniformed police officer. Uh, and I was very active in the International Police Association. And through them, I got to come to Russia in 2010 and worked with the Russian police for a month in St. Petersburg. And it was while I was here, I noticed that everyone the, the Russian cops were dealing with was tattooed. They had these greeny, bluey tattoos on their hands and... Uh, all over their body, and I, I was—I was saying to the Russian cops, you know, what's this all about? And they were really surprised I didn't know anything about it, considering I knew a bit about Russia and I could speak Russian. So they—they uh, they started to teach me about it. How all Russian criminals, pretty much all Russian criminals, when they're in prison, tattoo themselves with their with their criminal CV, and they—they they taught me, gave me a couple of books, and uh, I got into it that way.
0: Okay. Um yeah, so you mentioned like they have this kind of greenish blue hue. Can you talk a little bit about the aesthetic of the prison tattoos and like why they look that way and and sort of the general characteristics that they might have?
2: Sure. So, Russian prison tattoos, as I said as it says, they they're done in prison. Uh the Rus- Russia has the second largest prison population in the world after the United States and and it it has been that way for for decades. The reason behind why they tattoo themselves is, is debatable. And that's a, that's a thing perhaps I'll speak about a bit later. But they, they get these tattoos on themselves, in my opinion, to represent themselves and to, to show who they are because Russian prisons are dangerous hunting grounds almost, a bit like the US, and uh, the, the tougher you appear, the stronger you are, the less chance of you being uh, physically harmed. So the guys in prison, they tattoo themselves uh, with crimes to show what they've committed. Uh, who they are they're standing in the criminal underworld and uh, and these tattoos are done in in the prison now obviously there's no tattoo equipment available so they're done quite crudely the machines used are uh, needles needles attached to things like motors from a razor motors from a a cassette player and the ink used is it's quite interesting it's the undersole of your boot uh, burnt with a lighter mixed with your own urine uh, filtered through a sheet and uh, sometimes some ink, if they can get hold of any ink, that's added. And, uh, and that's, that's why they appear this sort of greeny, bluey, quite crude colouring.
1: Have you ever seen somebody give one of those tattoos? Like, oh, witness? no,
2: no. They're only done in prison. So um, and I've never seen anyone uh, give them. But speaking to, you know, quite a number of guys who've got them, they've, they've told me how they're done, what, they, what the ritual is, how the payment is. And, and uh, they've described to me how they do it.
0: So, so you, they're paying to have them done. Like, are there dedicated tattoo artists, or are is anybody potentially able to do these tattoos? There are. I mean, it seems like a skill. Oh yeah,
2: there are dedicated guys in the prisons who do it. And if you are one of these guys, you can have quite a decent life in prison because you'll you'll earn payments. Uh, you say that they don't actually pay for them. It's it's all agreed between themselves. If you're if you're friends with this tattooist or the guy who can do it or uh, if you're a senior guy, perhaps you won't pay. Perhaps you'll just give him a few cigarettes. You know, if you're not, if you're a younger guy, then yeah, you'll pay. You know, it's, it's a barter system. You, you, It's all agreed with within the prison. If the guy's your cellmate, he'll do it cheap. If he's not, then maybe you'll pay a bit more.
1: Hmm. Um, okay, I wanted to, like, step back out a little bit and talk about, from the book, like, you give a whole history of the, as the book title says, thief-in-law, mm-hmm. which also sort of includes a history of Russian prison system, and Russian prisoners. Could you just define, like, what Vorv Zakonya, what that is, thief-in-law?
2: Yeah, so Vodva Zakonya, the thieves-in-law, that that's uh, what the Russian mafia actually are, that's what they call themselves, so... You can take it back from uh, between the revolution and sort of Stalin's time. Russia had always had lots of organised crime in the Tsarist times. There had been a big problem. The Bolsheviks took over and they went out to crush organised crime, to crush petty crime. And they rounded all these guys up, locked them up. So the gulags that you all know about, they, they were born. And opposition to the Soviets was sent to the gulags. That included a lot of criminals, a lot of organised criminals. Whilst inside, this opposition to the, to the, Soviet, Union, the last Soviet power grew. And the vord, vaude, the vordas, the thieves, uh, emerged from that really, and it became it, and tattooing yourself and be, identifying with the the vordas of Konya became a, a way to oppose uh, the new Soviet Union, the new Soviet government.
1: What was like the heyday when there was a um, a sort of unified force of organized crime and mafia, where with all of the the rules like that, when that was all cohesive, and then like. How did that relate to tattoos?
2: Okay, so so it all starts sort of in the 20s, emerges quite organically from there, and you tattooed yourself initially quite crudely. I mean, there'd always been tattooing in Russia. In my opinion, it emerged uh, from from the British sailors. That's where tattooing in the modern world started. British sailors going all over the world, bringing it back to Europe, and men of the sea, criminals, uh, people in the underworld started to, 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 to tattoo themselves. That spread to Russia after there was a war between Britain and uh, Russia at sea. It wasn't massive in, in Russia. There, were, there was branding of uh, criminals in Tsarist times. If you escaped from prison, you could be branded on your face. Three letters, CAT, uh, I can't remember what it stands for, but that was across the face that showed you a prisoner mm-hmm. and that you'd escaped. Um, so branding was, was here. But as I say, starting in the 20s, sort of grew to show that you were anti-Soviet, to show that you were a real criminal, that you weren't bowing to the Soviets. Uh, but it's real heyday started in the second world war so second world war starts germans invade russia hasn't got enough manpower stalin issues a decree that uh you can be released from jail if you go and fight in the red army Mm. in the meantime before they've done that the 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 Vor, the the russian mafia these guys back then had written a list of um like laws that they live by called the understandings um and i can explain those to you yeah
1: yeah go ahead yeah so
2: I won't read them all, but... Wait, so
1: let me just clarify. The yeah. understandings, this, like, sort of Ten Commandments, but not ten, it's something that was put together before or after the war? Before. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great way
2: of saying it, actually, the Ten Commandments. Um, so the book is based on a, a training package I wrote for the British police after I worked in Russia, and I used to tell them like, the understandings, and when I'd tell them about the first one, all the cops would nod their heads, uh, because the first one is a thief, a Russian criminal must show no emotion. And, you know, I'm sure you guys know, when you're dealing with these sort of Gopnik Russian hooligans, part of their thing is to be very neutral and to be emotionless. And that, that was sort of their, their main commandment. No, no emotions, no relatives, no marriage, no property, uh, no children. The void, the thieves of your family now. Never have a proper job, never work for the government, never assist the police, all things like that. There was the thieves council, like the, the ruling group of the mafia was set up and you had to do what they said, never question it, never gamble without being able to cover your losses, never get so drunk you can't control yourself, learn the criminal language, fenya, like a criminal slang. All, all that was all part of the understandings.
1: If, if there's like such thing as a um, true vor, mm-hmm. a true thief, it's somebody who follows these commandments, it's someone that can be identified by this ID system of tattoos, yeah, so I'm curious about the relationship between this, again, back to the tattoos, like the relationship between the symbolic tattoos and the true criminal status now. Like, is it possible to... Is, does that still work? Does that system, is that system still in place? Or is that sort of something that, like, existed in the heyday around mid-century or during the late Soviet era even, and then now is like...
2: Uh, so... The heyday of the Vor was uh, back in those days. And the Second World War starts, Stalin offers a deal for everyone. You can be released from the gulags. If you serve in the Red Army, uh, your sentence will be cut. Not not completely stopped, but your sentence will be cut. Half the guys went in the gulags. And at this time, there's about two million men in the gulags. So about a million went, a million stayed. The ones who stayed, then ramped it up and started to really cover themselves in tattoos. They started to really enforce the understandings. And they, they viewed that the guys who went to war were traitors, and that they'd broken the understandings, one of them, which is never have a job, never work for the government, never associate with the government. War ends. Uh, Stalin didn't send these guys back. That's a myth. He, there's a myth going that Stalin sent all the guys back to the girl, I so he didn't. But the natural course of events, these guys ended up in prison again, and the thing called the Bitch Wars started that lasted right up until the 1970s, where the former soldiers were fighting with the, the real Vord, and that's when this... Massive tattooing thing started back then. The common tattoos that you get, there are lots now, and I'll, I'll tell you about them. But the ones back then, similar to what you get now, similar to sailor tattoos, daggers to show that you'd stab someone, uh, skulls to show that you committed a murder, uh, and all those exist now. The the big vord tattoo is the stars on the shoulders, a bit like in the in the Sicilian mafia that we're familiar with. If you if you're a don, if you're a mafia don, you might get an eight point star on your sh- underneath your shoulder blades, and that shows that you're you're high up. If if you progress to the top level, which allegedly there are about two hundred guys in the world who have, you'll have a, you'll turn that into a sixteen point star, and that shows that you are the peak of not just Russian organized crime but the world's organized crime. Um, they also get these tattoos on their knees, which which I have come across in my, in my police career. I've met a few guys who had the never sixteen, but a few eight point stars.
0: And and for the most part, has that to modern day stayed um, like authentic or? I assume that in a lot of ways, this kind of Russian tattoo aesthetic has been co-opted by pop culture.
2: Yeah, um, so you can tell, I've got uh, one example in the book and one example I do in my talk of a a, a faker, a guy who's got the Russian criminal tattoos, but he he was far too young to have the ones he should have, the ones he had on his body and that they were done professionally. So you can tell the difference between prison ones and real ones. The guys in, there's a big thing now with uh, in Russian youth custody, the young teenage boys in prison tattoo themselves cover themselves in these war tattoos that obviously they haven't earned that they don't deserve and sort of by the 90s the understandings and the, the, the strict rules that governed it really went out the window mm. you know, the, these young guys sort of idolised these older thieves copying them and in the past they'd have been punished severely for that but now it's sort of well you know what can we do
0: can you Could you pick, like, maybe uh two other tattoos that maybe you particularly like or mean a very specific thing and just talk about those? Yeah,
2: well, I can, I'll, uh, I'll give you some examples of um first time I ever encountered it in the UK. This was one of the best times. Uh got a call, a uh, Russian speaker, he'd covered himself in petrol, was holding a lighter and was going to set himself on fire. So I get down there, the guy couldn't speak any English, start talking to him, talk him down from torturing himself, take him away. And... It, Obviously, he changes clothes because he's covered in petrol. See his body, and he's covered in these Russian prison tattoos and chatting away to him in Russian. So, you know, oh, what, what does that one mean? What does that one mean? So, he, one of them he had was a, a cat, a smiley cat's face with keys underneath. And he tells me that means I'm a burglar. You know, and I, he starts telling me about his uh, burgling career back in uh, Latvia. <laughs> so, oh, you know, that's quite interesting. And then he, he showed me around his neck, he's got barbed wire with spikes. And he says, that was for a life sentence. Uh, each spike is a year that I served. Again, very interesting. Uh, he had a, the, the, the most common one you meet on all Russian criminals is, is the Russian church the kup- uh, with the cupola, the, with the towers. And each tower represents either a year served or a term of imprisonment. So you can count the terms. And if they've got a cross on top of the tower, that means they served the full term. Basically, you can look at these guys and you can read what tattoos they've got and you can say, you know, he's done this crime, He's served here. He's been in prison this many years. So it's, you know, it's really useful for, for cops as well as guys in prison.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm curious about that kind of iconography. You mentioned that this image of the church is used to indicate like certain sentences that people have served. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is the relationship between Russian-speaking organized crime and the Orthodox Church? Yeah, so this
2: is I'm I'm very excited to talk about this. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, anyone who uh, knows about Russia knows that the Russian church, they're a very political. They, 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 they've got no qualms in uh, sticking their oar in politically. They're very much involved in the state now, and they uh, were even more so back before the revolution. You know, they, they were an arm of the Tsar, in my opinion. They were very repressive to Russian society. They were very much against any sort of progress. So anyone with any sort of uh, understanding of them will see why Lenin wanted to round them up and close them all down, basically. So, as I say, the Bolsheviks are the ones who locked up all the criminals after the revolution and the church were a big opposition to the Bolsheviks. So the criminals sort of adopted Russian iconography. Uh, the church, as I say, is, is one of the most common ones. Jesus and Mary is a very common one, you see. That means I was born in prison or born into a criminal lifestyle. Um, and Jesus has been adopted as the king of thieves by Vaud, by, uh, <sighs> by the criminals. What? So it's... Okay. Um, you get... You, I've never encountered a Russian criminal who hasn't got some sort of religious iconography tattooed on him.
0: So, so the religious iconography doesn't necessarily translate to like, oh, I'm practicing Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy. It's, it's really more of a symbol. Well, it,
2: uh, yes and no. You see, all the high up void, all the, the, the rich Russian mafia, the oligarchs who made their money out of crime, are all very much into religion. Um, and in the, uh, the guys I've met, they've always got, although it's, it's not even Orthodox, they love playing around with the rosary beads that's a big thing that I'm a mafia guy and they've got rosary beads they always have a cross uh, the bigger and more gold the cross is the better to show your wealth so there, there is a link between organised crime and the orthodox church all orthodox sorry all Russian mafia criminals are into the church and there's, there's there's a great documentary you can find online about about these guys that you know they all love paying for a new church to be built They make <laughs> money to the church that's a real big thing of theirs you, have you been to Russian churches much?
1: Yeah. I've been to the cathedrals, like in St. Petersburg.
2: And you see the gold and the money there, and... Oh yeah, ornate. Yeah, ornate, you know, he's putting it mildly. The the first, when I first uh, was visiting here a few years ago, got taken to a service, and you see these big fat priests covered in, you know, their big gold crosses. Uh, All the congregation were poor, older women, and they pass the plate around three times, asking for money. And it's just, and, you know, you're in this gold church covered in, in. I don't think this is what Jesus really wanted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is with your little shop in the corner selling overpriced candles, and yeah. um, So, uh, you know, I, 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 am, I know there's a law here. You're not allowed to uh, offend religious believers, but uh, <laughs> the, Ru- the Russian Orthodox Church and organised crime go hand in hand, in my book. Huh. Um... But yeah. Anything I can slag off the Russian Orthodox Church, I'm more than up for it because I think they're absolute scumbags. Uh, if you go to the Russian service, you can't even sit down, and it lasts for hours.
1: That's part of it. You have to suffer and stand.
2: You do suffer, and uh, I said the one I got taken to three hours. It was almost three hours. They passed the plate around three times, uh, and they're just you know chanting like idiots. Uh, they don't know what, and the and I I thought this is this this isn't right.
1: It's funny how like the story of the origin of the church is that what was it, Vladimir, the czar back in the, like, first, whatever, 900 or something, was, like, searching for religions for Russia and, like, looked at all, you know, took, took a look at all the different world religions and was like, I, like... I like the Eastern Orthodox, or actually, I guess it was like sort of the Ottoman, Greek, Greek Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Church, because it's like the most ornate and the most like elaborate and the most, it's like this is, a, I like the way this looks. That, well, That's not like gold.
2: One of the reasons I'm into Russia was I had a history teacher at school who was obsessed with Russia and he'd go on about it all the time. And I, he, was, he was a brilliant teacher, he was very charismatic. And he said that the reason they're Orthodox is that, yeah, Vladimir went to some, he went searching for the religion that he was going to choose for Russia And uh, he went to the the Greeks or whoever, and they said, well, this is our religion. They presented it to him and said, and you can be the boss of it. You can be in charge. And so he said, all right, I'll have that one then. So whether that's true or not, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, that seems like (laughs) a good one to me. Plus, the churches are pretty. But
2: have Um, you you seen the the famous picture of Partridge Kirill with his watch?
1: Oh. um.
2: There's a famous picture on the internet. The the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill. His his watch is reflecting on the table, but his watch has been photoshopped out, and it's a thirty thousand oh dollar Philippe Patek or Rolex. They, <laughs> yeah. you know, the guy drives around Moscow in a May in a chauffeur driven Maybach. You know, he's got a thirty thousand dollar watch on, and he's talking to people about poverty. And also,
1: isn't there a, like a pretty? I don't know. We I haven't researched this, but I thought there was a pretty sort of like well documented connection between the church and the KGB and like officers being i mean during the soviet era sort of like doing some underground undercover work
2: i mean there may, there probably was i'm that i don't know i'm not i'm not couldn't claim to be an expert on that i know now that it's incredibly fashionable to be a supporter of the church and you see all these russian politicians paying homage to them whether whether they believe it or not i don't mm-hmm. know but yeah. I, I think they're a disgraceful organization
1: <laughs> okay wait so
2: so yeah sorry it's gone off track a bit well no, <laughs> cool.
1: so the connection with the orthodox church yeah i was really curious about that because you also have like that was something that was happening during the Soviet era as well, right? Yeah,
2: it started. It started at the very beginning of the uh, yeah the Soviet era, and, and it's continued on to this day.
1: Because, because generally speaking, the Vory are not particularly Soviet, so they don't because they're not like they don't agree with the government. So it's not like they would be atheist or something. They're not, you know,
2: no, no, it, it's, it's the, the Vori originally, they adopted sort of two strands as well as the traditional sort of, uh, sailor tattoos. They went down the lines of taking on the Orthodox stuff because it was in opposition to the Soviets. And then after the war, um, they, it became very, very common to get Nazi or German stuff. Now every, I'd say every, I'm exaggerating there, I'd say 80% of the Russian criminal guys I've met have some sort of Nazi or German tattoo, because, but it doesn't mean that they're racist or a Nazi, it's more of a a fuck you to society, because they know it it offends and it's very anti-Russian.
0: Wow. Do you, do you know anything about the practice of, like, Russian prison tattoos in America? Like, after a lot of people immigrated to, you mentioned Brighton Beach in, in your book. Do you know if if the that, like, style tattooing became a practice within American prisons and if it changed at all? Do you know anything about I, that?
2: I don't know about American prisons. Uh, what I do know is that the, the Russian mobs in America do maintain links with Russia. There are strong Russian Mafia presences in Chicago, New York, Miami, uh, everywhere you'd expect them, really. Brighton Beach is the centre of it. In in the late 70s, Russian guys went over to establish it, and then in the 90s, it was sort of reinforced, and that's when they really took off. Whether they tattoo themselves in American prisons, that I don't know. I I can't be honest. But There's a thing called the OBSHAK, which is like a, a general fund that all the Mafia groups and the Russian criminals pay into, and the ones in America do... Contribute to that, and they do. They do maintain links with mm-hmm. Russia. And they make they exchange manpower back and forth between Russia and America.
1: Would that still exist? That fund? Oh, very much
2: so. Yeah, I mean, in America, they really take they're really, ta- they're, really um, they're really successful in America. They do they they sort of act as sort of consultants for other criminal groups. They do like money laundering is a big thing for them. Medical insurance fraud in America is a huge thing for them. They control any sort of white collar, real sort of extreme white collar stuff. They control boiler room frauds. Uh, you know. Fraud like in, you've all seen The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. That's what. That was one of their big things that they did. Um, so, yeah, they're very, very active in America. Supplying stuff to the... I'm sure you've all heard about this. Sub, they They got... A submarine was found in... This was actually in America. It was in Colombia. But a, a, a Soviet-era submarine was found in the jungle, half-constructed, that the Russians had supplied to the, you know, the narco-traffickers. So, yeah, they're very active in the in the US and in, in all the Americas.
1: Do you have a question, Sam? uh Oh yes, I did have a. Question. Sorry, I know. Me too.
0: Oh, oh, you had, you had alluded to the bitch wars. Can mm. you like summarize what that was and and yeah, kind of how it resolved and then. Yes,
1: so
2: the bitch wars was uh, say after the war, all the guys who'd served in the Red Army against the Germans got sent back to jail. Eventually, you know, not not, not there wasn't a mass betrayal of them, but they fell into a criminal life. The economy was shot, so they got involved in crime. Went back to jail. Uh, the war went to take their revenge. You know, wanted to execute these guys. But these guys, you know, they weren't any... They weren't pushovers. They stood up and fought back. And a thing emerged called the Bitch Wars, where you had the uh, people who were willing to associate and to follow the rules of the prison, mostly ex-soldiers, fighting against the the Ashi Vor, the original vors. So, so this Bitch War started. The Soviets had to have two separate prisons uh, within the Gulags. Much like you get in the US now, where prisoners are segregated by their race, and by their groups, to stop serious crime, you know, stop serious assaults on each other. That emerged... Lasted, you know, right up until the seventies, and the the vore had actually lost. They were almost wiped out in the bitch wars, and uh, this this phrase called to kiss the knife, which was a a ritual they had where you sort of a- agreed to follow the rules of the prison emerged. So if you if you were a vore to save your life, you'd kiss the knife and agree to follow the rules. So right up until the seventies, the vore were almost done for.
0: And and it's from but it's from the the vore like prison vores. From which the Russian mafia emerged or was it a combination of them and the people that had re- had served in the Red Army
1: you're asking Smith if the Russian Mafia itself emerged sort of like after that yeah from... well, what
0: happened was so so the Russian mafia was almost wiped
2: out ver- almost wiped out almost gone and Khr- Khrushchev said uh, uh, soon he will present the last criminal to to the Soviet people it was you know the Soviet sorry the Soviets were doing so well against uh, organized crime. Then you had the stagnation under Brezhnev where the economy went downhill and you started to get this corruption uh, within the Soviet economy. The black market emerged and that's when the Russian mafia sort of re-emerged in its new form with these uh, very intelligent guys trading, uh, acting as go-betweens between ordinary people and the government and, and it sort of reemerged in. then and then the 90s happened. The country fell to pieces and that's when the it exploded really. It was a perfect combination of things to to reignite the Russian Mafia.
0: And, and what was like the difference? Because prior, like maybe in the earlier 20th century, the type of crime that was being committed was different than in, in the 90s, right?
2: So in the 20s, when it emerged and it started, it was robberies, bank robberies, things like Stalin he himself used to do bank robberies, I'm sure you know. You know, unusual criminal activity. Then in the 70s, you had the uh, bribery, corruption, the black market was a, a big thing and that's when the, sort of, the Georgian groups emerged became very powerful dealing with the black market because that was against the understandings you know to deal with the to deal with mm-hmm. the government and obviously everything was the government because it was Soviet times so you had this black marketeering right up uh, the 80s Gorbachev instigates these laws the biggest mistake you can make he makes um, like you had in America in the Chicago what was it? Uh, what's the word
1: prohibition prohibition
2: so Gorbachev institutes the dry laws. Not quite prohibition, but you can only buy two bottles of vodka a month. Um, so that that created this huge prohibition-type bonanza for organised crime. economy is stagnating worse and worse and worse. Gorbachev makes... Uh, allows people to... This was the, the, the biggest mistake he made was the two things. The dry laws was a, a huge mistake. The other one was allowing people to trade and set up cooperatives. So all these cooperatives did was purchase things from the government and then sell them on the black market. Sell them on the... So... The government, you all know, Soviet shops are empty anyway. So the stuff that was made by the, the Soviet factories wasn't getting to the shops anyway. Gorbachev institutes this law. So the stuff that was made being made and not getting to the shops, it got even worse. These guys were either stealing it or mostly through blackmail and bribery, getting it from the factories and selling it for 10 times its value on the, on the streets. And that meant you know, no, no extra stuff was being made, just more was being stolen and sold at a much higher price. So that, combined with the dry laws, combined with the stagnation of the economy, combined with oil price crash, the Soviets were really dependent on oil money back then, Chernobyl. Everything that could have gone wrong for Gorbachev did go wrong, and he basically crashed the economy, and that got organised crime going. Again, 90s happened, police unpaid for months and months, average salary of less than $100 a month, hyperinflation at 1,000%, poverty rates at 51%. It's the perfect storm for organised crime to flourish, and that's what happened.
1: Okay, so... Can you talk about um, the relationship between like, the Russian oligarchs emerging in the 90s and organized crime? Like, is this one and the same group of people? Is this?
2: It, yes, it is. Um, Russia's first billionaire, Boris Birozovsky, I'm sure a lot of you know this guy, fled to the West in the early 2000s, as did many of the oligarchs. He presented himself in the West, in the UK, as a champion of democracy, as an anti-Putin freedom fighter. Uh, but the guy, yeah, he was Russia's first billionaire uh, by fraud, he he defrauded millions of people. Uh, the way they did it, 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 was a, it was a very simple scheme. This thing called uh, shock therapy was forced on Russia uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where they had to privatise the economy very quickly and get everything into private hands. So the idea sounds good. Everyone was given a cheque, a, a privatisation cheque, that they could cash in for shares. Ordinary people, they have been living in the Soviet Union for 70 years, they don't know anything about share ownership. Um, they're starving, they've got no work, and they've, got, they've been given this cheque. The average cheque was sold for, I believe, about $7. Uh, people I've interviewed say they, they swapped their cheque for a bottle of vodka or for you know some food because they were starving. And guys like Birozowski swept up these cheques. Now, a number of people were smart enough not to hold on to them, and they invested them in these schemes that were set up all around the country. The most famous one was called AAA, where people could invest their, their, their cheque, and it would be put into a fund. Every single one of those investment funds went bankrupt, every single one. Um, so the cheques were then dished out at secret auctions to the oligarchs to buy up for pennies. People who were clever enough to hold on to their cheques or to buy other cheques and to invest them were murdered or had their property stolen off them at gunpoint. So men like Birozovsky, I won't mention other oligarchs because Birazovsky dead so we can say what we like about him, he can't sue us. <sighs> but other oligarchs made their fortune by getting hold of these cheques, buying up oil companies. Oh, a famous one, One of the I won't say the name of it, one of the most famous Russian state utilities that is worth trillions of dollars uh was auctioned off at, uh, to in a village in Siberia and only residents of that village were allowed to bid now luckily a number of super rich oligarchs had registered themselves in that village just before the auction so they were able to snap up uh, a huge state utility for a fraction i mean i'm, I'm talking a couple of percent of its true value hmm. so that that's how these guys you know got their money you don't you don't make a billion dollars honestly overnight so there is a huge and it's in it's 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 almost it's a hugely annoys me in the west the way you see these gangsters presenting themselves as these great guys who are into into liberalism and uh, you know oh I want to help poor russia and I'm a de- democrat when you you know you you st- you've made your billion dollars by stealing it off people
0: i mean i i was aware of that like general phenomenon a little bit but i didn't realize the kind of very specific relationship between the UK and yeah. Russian oligarchs. Could you detail that a little bit? Yeah, the
2: UK, so uh, this isn't just, this is, this is fact. I mean, Forbes magazine said the UK is, is home to a money laundering network, you know, like the Cayman Islands. London channels money in. Now, uh, the UK has chosen London, specifically London, as a place to run to because uh, as a UK police, I can tell you, we've never extradited a single Russian criminal, not one. So if you're you're a Russian bad guy, you can go to the UK, you're safe. Uh, There's a thing in the UK called the UK Investment Visa Scheme where we will give you a visa slash passport, almost no questions asked. The only question is how much money have you got? Uh, If you've got, right, I I think it's still the same as this. If if you invest two million pounds, if you invest two million pounds in the UK, uh, not in things like properties, but other things in shares or government bonds specifically, you can have a visa, no questions asked. Uh, after five years of having that visa, you're given a British passport. And having a British passport, then you, you definitely won't be extradited to Russia. If you invest £10 million uh, in two years, you can have the British passport in two years. So this was the, the chosen thing for the Russian guys to do. Fla- f- uh, flee to the UK, present yourself as a Democrat, you'll get, you get your passport, you're, you will not be extradited. London's very... You know, it's convenient for, for working. You, you know, you can be in New York within, is it five-hour flight to New York from London? You mm-hmm. can be in Moscow in three and a half hours. You can do business all around the world. You're right in the middle. The Russians love British education system. They love British culture. It, it became the destination choice for all the Russian oligarchs fleeing fleeing in the 2000s to go to.
1: Is there a known living mafia head right now from the Russian-speaking world?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a few. Um, I think,
1: I feel, yeah, can you... So,
2: so the Russian Russian mafia is not a huge one-group organisation. It's many sort of separate groups linked together. You've got the biggest one is a group in Moscow, Solzhenitsyn uh, Bratstva or something, I can't remember. That's got 5,000 members. I can't remember the, lead, the head man's name off the top of my head, but he's uh, still free. Simeon Mogilevich is a... Uh, the FBI called the, the the boss of bosses and the world's most powerful mobster. He's a Ukrainian-Israeli uh, mafia boss who is roams free. I believe he's, he lives in Moscow. He's 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 number four on the FBI's world's most wanted list. Um, so yeah, he's he's roaming about. Uh, took a tune of another one, the one who I think you girls are a bit young for this, but uh, when you had the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, he was the guy who bribed a load of judges for Russia to win a gold medal and. He was, he was a big mafia figure in Germany and France and Italy, who's, again, back, back in Russia now.
0: Mm. There's, there's loads of
2: them. There's, got, there's guys in the south of France. Uh, you've got all the guys who are wanted and famous in the UK. The Chechen warlords live in the UK. I, I say I won't name them because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but they're in my book, actually, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> By the book. Yeah, apart from who was uh, who's dead, so we can say what we like. You know, they're all, they're, Yeah, there's loads. There's loads and loads of them roaming free.
1: This question of, like, back to what is a true war, what is this thief, how are these, like, contemporary mafia bosses related to the war? Because presumably they kind of work in some way, right? Like, through channels that maybe don't fit in with the understanding. So I'm just curious, yeah. What's the relationship there?
2: Well, I wouldn't say work. If you act in a criminal way, is isn't work. So they, they don't count that as work. Um, I mean, yeah, the war now... One of the reasons they're so successful is that it's very difficult for, to infiltrate them by police because you they, they get these tattoos in prison. You have to be answered for. Oh, I served with this guy in prison. I, I did, you know, Russians. You know, they say that I sat in prison yeah. with this guy for so many years, and you tattoo yourselves, and that shows who you are. And to get your tattoos, you have to you have to get it approved by your cellmates. By if it's a if it's a high ranking tattoo that you'd like, like the stars, or let's let's say um, Lily, let's say. Little scenario. So I, I'm a mafia chief and I order you to go and commit a murder for me. High-ranking guy, you, you do that murder.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, well done. You end up in prison. You can say, I, I did that murder for Mark in Moscow. I killed that guy. Yes, you yes, did. Da, da, da. So you're, you can award yourself or you get awarded this tattoo. Let's say high-ranking. Anything on the shoulders is traditionally high-ranking. So, And it's a murder you've committed. So you might get a huge dagger going from one shoulder blade into your neck, coming out the other side that shows you've committed a high-ranking murder. Uh, you might get some drips of blood off it for other to show the other murders you've committed. <laughs> you might have killed a, someone not so high for me, and you can have yourself a skull uh, or a grave, maybe on your ribs, on your abdomen. And it still exists today. It, it absolutely exists. It's not as strictly controlled, but the guys see the understandings as an ideal, not a cast-iron law. They try to follow it, which is why cops will say, if they deal with Russian guys, they're very... They people are oh, they're ignorant, but they just they sort of just don't speak to you. They just you know and da da and They show no emotion. Um, when I used to interview the guys back in prison in the UK, they they, they changed because they were a bit shocked that I could speak Russian. Uh, I'd take them out of the jail for a McDonald's or for a cigarette or you know anything I could do for them. And because I was interested in the tattoos, they 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 were quite happy to show me. And I, I think a lot of them understood that. In the UK, we've got a big problem with Eastern European drunks and hooligans and, you know, bums, basically. And they get treated like that. And I think by showing me that, oh, no, you know, I was Russian mafia, I did this, I did that, that they would get a lot more respect from the English jail workers, the English cops, which is true. So they were very keen to show me. But they do, you know, this stuff, although it's not an, it's not cast-ironly followed, it's it seems an ideal. And they do try and follow it.
0: Wait, sorry, was this, you can take... Uh people out of out of english prisons or out of russian prisons just to like go out and about
2: no no well i was a, i was a police officer in england so i i you know i could do that I, what we do in england i'm sure they do it in america as well is uh, intelligence interviews so if you've got a gang member or someone who might have something you know that you want to know about you'll go and do an intelligence interview with them that doesn't have to be done in prison you know you can you, people aren't going to tell you something for nothing you know if you right and a McDonald's and a cigarette is is quite a, is worth quite a lot for someone who's locked up.
0: I'm curious about these practices in women's prisons because I know that women would also get prison tattoos, and I'm wondering is it the same set of rules or is there variation? And could women be like a true boy?
2: So no, uh, no, sorry. So I know this doesn't. Uh, I know your American <laughs> feminists it. might kick off now, and uh, uh, but no, no, you can't be in, you can't be in the Russian mafia. So sadly. Uh, but women in Russian prisons do tattoo themselves quite heavily. Uh, it, takes a compl- it takes a different line. I mean, they're quite similar designs. They've got the same greeny, bluey, you know, they're not very attractive, but they're more sentimental, and they might show, similar to the men, why the woman's in jail. I'm sure you'll do this now. I know Lily will start doing this. You can On the metro, you can look at people, and you look at their hands, and you can spot the prison tattoos. A uh, common one you see on Russian women is the sign that they used to be a prostitute, which would be a a lily, a flower, an open flower with a coin. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So that's the... um,
1: Oh, Uh, on their hand?
2: No, not on the hand. On the women, it's normally around the hips, the groin, around the sexual areas.
1: Hard to see on the metro, but... (laughs) Uh,
2: But you might get a swan, which uh, is a sign of lost virginity. Uh, That could be on the hands. Um, You you get uh, a lot of... uh, Yes, so open flower, a violin shows uh, a lesbian. Um, uh, I think an apple with a bite out of it shows lost virginity as well. There's lots of, lots of, they're more sexual and sentimental is the way i describe it in the book. You get lots of like names of children, names of lost lovers against the man who's the reason they're inside. But you also, this is the interesting thing about the women, you get the, the most horrific punishment tattoos have done by the, uh, by the women prisoners on each other. And I've not seen this, I've only heard about it. A Russian cop told me that the worst he's seen was, I know I can... Sp- be a bit crude on your show uh, was a, an erect penis going into a woman's mouth tattooed on her face and that was because oh, she would killed her own
1: children oh that's fucked oh that's rough that's rough but that's also I, when I read that in the book I was just like it kind of struck me as like I mean it's it's interesting that that's the choice for what is that called when, when you kill your own children is there like mattress for- no it's killing your mother matricide, isn't
2: it?
0: Matricide. yeah whatever something side uh, yeah. Detty side. <laughs> just yeah. Russianize it Yeah, it's well because it's women using male sexual violence against others. Yeah, that's super I mean, it's
1: male symbolic male sexual violence for killing for like something that is sort of like this, you know, perceived as like this horrifically unnatural thing or just like there's a lot going on there symbolically and it's interesting that that's the choice of punishment it's horrible but yeah
0: it is horrible I'm curious kind of about your methodology for collecting photos and interviewing people for the book Mm -hmm. like uh, can you can you just talk about that like your experience of going into prisons and talking to people and so so
2: when I was a cop it was easy any sort of Russian speaker got arrested I would uh, in my sort of North London area I would get called and I'd go and do an intel interview with them. And I said, can I take your photograph? Can I, you know, quite friendly. And uh, all but once they always said, yes, you know, you can you can take my photos, no problem. They were they were quite into it, actually. They liked doing it with me. Since I've left the police, uh, I try and sort of, I come to Russia quite frequently. And uh, I've got some police friends here. They put me in touch with people who then put me in touch with other people. I haven't done this yet, but I'm, I'll, I intend to put an advert in a, uh, a local newspaper next time I come. Because Russia's got such a huge prison population after second after the United States. That goes for women as well. It's got the second highest women's prison population. It's quite easy to find guys who've either served, you know, a long time. last guy I met here, so now I'm in St Petersburg now doing some research and spoke with two guys last week. One of them had done six years, so not so long, and he had sort of four or five prison tattoos. And the other guy had done 21 years. And he was, he was, a, bur- he was a prolific burglar. And so, I, you know, spoke with him, found him through a connection Didn't mean to, took my photos. He put me onto another guy who then gives me other, and, you know, things like that. So it's just sort of word of mouth, Mm -hmm. police friends, guys I meet. Yeah, and and the ones from the book are all, are either my prison photos, the ones that I took from guys I met, or I have a friend in Moscow who me and him used to swap photos. It was his job in the Russian police to gather intel. And so, you know, he taught me a lot about it.
1: He's a Russian police officer. Yeah, he's a Russian police officer.
2: uh, There's two of them who work in Moscow full-time, getting intel about these tattoos what they mean who's wearing what because you can, so you can look at a guy and you can, you can read his, his criminal resume by his body
0: Mark do you want to plug the book tell people where they can buy it yeah I've got my,
2: my little wrap up at the end
0: uh,
2: so the book uh, Thief in Law by me Mark Bullen is available to order now from Amazon that's American Amazon UK Amazon German Amazon or you can order it direct from the publishers that's Schiffer Books in Pennsylvania um, or you can go to my website markgbullen.com and I'm also doing a little tour of my the police training package I wrote. Uh, I haven't had the chance to say this, anything, think, but uh, after I'd worked with the Russians, I wrote a police training package that became very successful. I used to do it in Scotland Yard every three months, and I ended up getting flown to America uh, to do it to the FBI, DEA, and regular police in Seattle. So the, that, that that I've turned that into a little tour, and I'm in the UK in September in London, Bristol, Manchester, Leighton Buzzard, and uh, Cologne in Germany, in uh, Germany. That's all details on my website, markgbullun.com. And uh, I'm also on Twitter, at Mark G. That's my little plug. Okay,
1: perfect. Great, yeah.
0: yeah. All right, that's the episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for Mark for coming on the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Telegram and Twitter at She's in Russia. Subscribe to our monthly image base newsletter at She's in Russia.com. Give us a call if you have any questions plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six or leave us a message on Skype at She's in Russia, which admittedly I need to check. I haven't checked that in months. So if you left a message there, sorry. and yeah if you're if you listen to us on soundcloud but you're not subscribed to us through a podcasting app subscribe to us through a podcasting app you won't regret it and we will see you next week why do you want them to subscribe to a podcasting app mrs smith because then they get a goddamn notification and the episode is on their phone and it feels dissatisfying if you don't listen to it because it's like unlistened it's important it encourages it's important
1: important psychological move for you to make yeah because you need that she's in russia unplayed hanging over your head right
0: because you better be listening to us
1: the whole episode every week yeah you especially have? this end part
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is the best part well i say support us Oh, yeah. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash She's in Russia. If you want to help us do things like transcribe the episodes or travel it's literally to your
1: favorite one that or nobody cares travel about. travel
0: to cool places. <laughs> hey, it's good for SEO. And there's a subset of people on the internet who care about accessibility because what, what deaf people really want to do is read podcast transcripts.
1: Jesus
0: Christ. Um, um, and but help us to go to like other field places, equipment and shit i said that already buy better equipment yeah. yeah
1: um and and, and you just already, generally the people
0: promote the podcast and make it big and famous
1: and already the people who are supporting us we are like wordlessly grateful we're extremely grateful um so thank you so much to those people yeah this month and shout out to
0: Adri, jacob and flannel and folk
1: and we didn't do shout outs the other month but i know my dad other people a lot of other people (laughs) a lot of other wonderful people so if you want to be shouted out yeah we'll shout you out
0: we'd really appreciate it yeah yeah we'll shout you out now that three people are listening at the end hello three people
1: (laughs) we love you (laughs) okay goodbye okay goodbye see you next week